Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Lisa, Lucas, and Michael Archer. Okay. Hi. Michael is now resenting me for making him come up here, but um, I'm Lisa, and I'm the publisher. This is Michael Archer, who is the co-founder and editor-in-chief. Um, and we are here because this year is our 10th anniversary, and it's our first ever print edition. So we're super excited to actually leave New York, to leave the internet, um, and to be here sharing it with you guys. So we have three readers here today um, who will read pieces from the actual magazine, uh, or from the, the print edition, which is the annual. And do you want to talk a little bit about what Guernica is? Well, that's why that No, but it's not just... Guernica, there's... Michael is going to read to you from the introduction in a moment, which does explain a bit about the magazine, but I'll tell you if you like. Sure. Magazine of Art and Politics with an international focus. We publish um, on the 1st and 15th of every month, and we have a daily section that publishes every weekday. Um, we, po we publish poetry, fiction, features, interviews, art features, um, and we've been around for 10 years, we're free, we're online. Do you anything else you want to? I'm forgetting all about volunteer. what our magazine all volunteer magazine. Um, and so there are about 35 of us um, that work on the magazine. So it's a real labor of love. So it's been really exciting for us to have this 10th anniversary. Um, I have just been around for two years. Michael has been around for every single one of the 10 years. Um, and so this is surely a different moment for you than it is for me. But we're really excited to um, showcase the work that's in the annual. Um, the way that we put it together, and he'll talk a little bit about it, is um, our editorial staff uh, voted on some of their favorite pieces from the past year. Our poetry editor, who's been around for eight years, um, selected some poems, um, as did our fiction editor. Um, and then we made a book from Sheer Will and Kickstarter. Um, and so this collection is 33 pieces um, that showcase the past year. Um, I think the breadth and year-ish. Uh, showcase the breadth and depth of the magazine, um, the way that it ranges from the you know small feeling to the global issue, um, and we're really proud of it. And this is the first time we've actually seen it um, from the actual printer, so it has like a little embossed cover and the paper that we like, and so that was um, making. It's, it turns out, guys, that going from uh, digital to print is a thing. <laughs> So um, now I will let Michael read from the introduction, which should contextualize everything that you're hearing, and then I'll come back and introduce each of the readers with their bios. Um, and thank you guys all for joining, and hope you will pick up a copy of the annual because we are a very small nonprofit, all volunteer organization, and it does support us. Thanks. First off, for real, um, thanks to all of you from for coming out. I am. Um, I'm from this area, so I know it's uh, not easy to do these things. 
I think uh, just reading, uh, the, we'd sort of build this as a Q&A with Lisa and I afterward, but I sort of realized that what Lisa and I would have been talking about is sort of covered in the in the introduction. So I think just by, which doesn't mean if you guys have questions afterward, feel free to, to ask, but I think that most of what we would have talked about is, is covered in, in the introduction. And it also give you a sense of the kind of material that's in the book. Caring about the world right now can feel like caring for a terminally ill patient. I write this at the end of a week that saw a Malaysian 777 blown out of the sky over Ukraine, Israel launch a ground offensive into Gaza, immigrant children still piling up at the U.S.'s southern border, and my Facebook newsfeed filled with posts asking some version of what the fuck. None of the pieces in this annual, Guernica's first, directly take up those events or tackle breaking news. What you will encounter, Kashmiri youths throwing rocks at body-armored Indian soldiers, less with intent to injure the occupying forces than to insult the occupying power. No polemic on the immigration reform debate, but a border agent's first encounter in the southwestern desert with the body of someone who died entering the U.S. Our conversation on mental illness skips firearms availability to consider where the, the resigning standards of mental disorder are um, crazy. The short story about a deaf boy forced to endure a faith healing ritual sits defiantly beside the real life story of a prisoner not allowed to starve himself. An averse takedown of the Burmese regime may not have the gravitas of Aung San Suu Kyi, but makes up for it in derision of the activists and the poet's shared target. Though it's a rare issue of Guernica that tracks things crawling across the bottom of the broadcast news screen, this selection attests to the state of things in the world. Given how not funny the state of things is, it strikes me as significant that so many contributors find opportunity for humor in the grim stories they tell, along with rebellion, humanity, even hope. Across their considerable range of interest, what these works, fiction and poetry included, have in common is that each provides a clip or snapshot of some otherwise lost, to me at least, piece of the world as it is. We may have thought best of, but did wind up putting together a true annual. So why didn't we do it sooner? After all, Guernica was launched nearly a decade ago. Well, see, we wound up on a boat. The star of Palm Beach, in fact, Joel Whitney, my co-founder, and I stood on the aft deck overseeing New York Harbor and calming our nerves with wine as guests for Guernica's first benefit came aboard. The evening, fall of 2007, Frederick Tutton and Oscar Iluelos would converse, Melissa Bank would read, and musicians would play to raise money for our three-year-old online-only magazine. The purpose was to put out, finally, a print edition, an anthology with the placeholder title, The Best of Guernica's First Three Years. It's a wonder the leaden weight of that didn't sink the star. The magazine's designer had mocked up a provocative cover, a feminine mouth and close-up, the lips glossed red, bright red, biting into a cherry. The tagline? Our first time. The image and graphics naming the writers included, included we'd made the benefits poster, mounted on an easel, it graced the step-off from the gangway. 
The stress on finally above shouldn't lead anyone to infer that readers were clamoring to see GMAG go analog. In fact, I don't remember a single such request. But we were a staff of writers who'd spent childhood and adolescence holding books and magazines and still, even if we didn't say it publicly, believed real legitimacy was the preserve of bookshelves. We were still counting the take, enough to underwrite a modest print run, when friends and advisors asked in various versions the question, what the hell are you doing? They'd add, print publications are going broke and are racing to have an online presence. Guernica is ahead of the game. Plus, you're getting the magazine out on a shoestring budget. Why not use the money for operating costs? Sometimes you have to listen to sense, though it kills you. That poster hanging in my, hanging in my apartment in a nook that only a New York realtor could, with a straight face, call an office, is, is all we've had to show for our getting on paper ambitions till now. Along with sketching a quirky backstory, every anthology's introduction is obligated to touch on how difficult it was to choose the pieces within. Consider that obligation fulfilled. It was brutal. What made the task less daunting, however, was our decision to limit the choices to, what's, to what we'd publish what, to what we've published from January 2013 to mid-2014. That means the vast majority of eight years' worth of pieces that have appeared in Guernica, including those cited on that mock-up cover above my desk, may never be read in old-fashioned print with a binding. So we'll continue to keep them available online, free, as long as the internet shall live. The selections were nominated by the magazine's staff of volunteers. They were asked to choose favorites from Guernica and Guernica Daily in that year and a half. To show the breadth of the magazine's content, a few of the most frequent picks were swapped out for others that received fewer nominations but focused on subject matter not yet represented. A quick example, you will find here Kies Lehman's bracing and intimate Hey Mama. But to read his equally terrific You Are the Second Person, also a top, a top vote gator, you'll have to visit us online. And if you read Hey Mama and don't feel the need to read second person, you're dead to me. As long as Guernica continues to be produced by the kind of curious and talented people responsible for shepherding the pieces here, future annuals will deliver in features, interviews, poetry, and fiction, tight close-ups of, of small moments that simultaneously document the larger concerns of an epic. And if the edition you're holding is any indication, pieces that become increasingly political and kvetch more the closer they get to home. This, I think, says good things about the outlook of Guernica's crew. There's some irony in the fact that seven years after that New York Harbor cruise, Guernica's readers, an, unlike, an online audience that's never been bigger, have by donations to Kickstarter to a Kickstarter campaign confirm that there is good reason to go to print occasionally. Online publication in our arena has gotten past the stigma that still clings to blog and straight to video. We like to think we played a small role in putting that issue to bed. Yet even with the way things have changed, a physical book still has a feel of permanence. These days, especially, that matters. Thanks. I feel shame for calling it Guernica instead of Guernica. 
Um, so now we're going to have three readers um, reading selections from the annual. Um, they'll be relatively short, um, and we just wanted to give you guys an idea of what's in the book, and we're really probably fairly simple people who are more interested in what's happening after than reading to you for a long time. So um, our first reader is going to be Catherine Taylor, who's the author of the novel Valley Fever, a cross-generational tragic comedy set in California's wine-soaked Central Valley, to be published in June 2015 by FSG. She's also the author of Rules for Saying Goodbye, a novel of young women's disassembling and reassembling herself, also published by FSG in 2007. Catherine's stories and essays have appeared in the New York Times, Elle, Town and Country, and Plowshares, among other publications. She's won a Pushcart Prize and the McGinnis Ritchie Award for Fiction. She has a BA from the University of Southern California and an MFA from Columbia University, where she was a graduate writing fellow, and she lives here in Los Angeles. Um, and she's going to be reading from an interview between one of our senior editors in nonfiction um, and Claire Massoud. This will be brief. <laughs> um, when I when I picked up the issue and looked through it, there was all just there was so much to choose from, and um, I, I liked a little bit of what Claire Massoud had to say about art and writing. Um, so I'm not going I'm not going to read the questions. I'm just going to read a couple of her answers. Among other things, I have always loved reading the ranters and the ranters are all boys. And I thought, well, what would it be like? It's unseemly for women to be ranters, but I certainly know at times that I can be a ranter. There are two particular questions that seem to me <clears throat> more gendered. Questions of wanting to be an artist, and what does that mean? What makes you an artist? Are you an artist if you're, a you're in a gallery in New York, and not an artist if you're doing it at home? Do you, do you need legitimation to count? If you've been acculturated to believe that you have certain obligations, familial, social, human, if multitasking has been your fort and that's what's been praised and rewarded, where do you find the single-mindedness, the selfishness to do something like art? I think those are the questions that arise differently for women and for men. Someone asked me, is it hard to understand Nora's rage? And I said, no, not at all. Nora's rage is maybe different from mine, but I think if you had a Venn diagram, there would be overlaps. That first chapter was the first part I wrote, and it came to me in a volley. When we were in Germany for a fellowship, I read from it, and there was a Dutch anthropologist in his 60s, and he came up to me afterwards and said when he was growing up, he never saw his mother angry. Saturday morning was cleaning day, and she would go upstairs, and his father and the children would all be sitting in the kitchen and would hear her cursing at the top of her lungs while she was changing the beds and sweeping the floor. And then she would come back downstairs smiling, and they would all go on as if they hadn't heard. They never spoke of it. I think there's a lot of rage that rises from always being the good one. And then a few pages later, she talks a lot about the book, which, get the magazine, because it's all really good, but I, d I wanted to read very briefly. And so a few pages later, in one of her answers, she says, 
I think there's no question that there's a reason why small children make great art and why slightly bigger children don't. And it's because small children don't worry about what anyone else thinks and slightly bigger children start to worry about these things. So, we can call it selfishness, but I think there are often I think these are often names that make us feel better. You know, wow, I would never be that selfish. But it certainly takes some single-minded commitment. Whether that's selfishness or selflessness, I don't know. I'm going to stop. <laughs> Thanks. And thank you guys. It's such a beautiful magazine. Go and purchase it. <laughs> All right. Our next reader is Kima Jones. Um, who has received fellowships from Penn Center USA Emerging Voices, Kimbilio Center for African American Fiction, and the McDowell Colony. She's been published at NPR, Pank, and The Rumpus, amongst others. Um, Kima lives here in LA and is writing her first poetry collection, The Anatomy of Forgiveness. Hi, everyone. So I am going to read the entire selection of the selection that I selected. <laughs> it's a short selection, though. It's, um, um, it's a fairy tale, and I love fairy tales. Um, and so we're going to read it. It's called The Jealous Wife by Um Kalaf. Bismillah Rahman Rahim. There was once a man who had a sister and they lived happily alone in their house. He fished and traded and raised sheep and then returned home to his sister. They enjoyed each other's company and were happy. By Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's will, the brother came of age. His sister said to him, oh brother, why don't you get married? I'm afraid to bring home someone who will make you uncomfortable and anxious, he replied. No, my brother, she assured him. Our neighbors have a daughter and she is pretty. Inshallah, she'll be a sister to me. The man went and proposed to the neighbor's daughter. By God's will, they were married and he brought her back home. In the beginning, the wife got along well with the sister. She loved her and looked after her and they had fun together. But the wife was very jealous and one day had a bad, in, had a bad intention infiltrated the wife's heart toward the sister. Whenever the brother was away on travel or elsewhere, the sister sat at her window in her room and talked to the moon. She said to it, Greetings, father of happiness, O oh, one who gives good company to virtuous girls in their mother's house. The sister did this to pass the time, for they had no electricity, nothing except the moon. On one of these occasions, the brother's wife overheard the sister talking to the moon. She put her ear against the door to listen as the poor girl talked to the moon. Greetings, father of happiness, O one who gives good company to virtuous girls in their mother's house. One day, the brother came back from his trading trip and his wife said to him, Hey, dearest? Yes, he replied. I have something to tell you about your sister. She's not decent. My sister? What? he exclaimed. How is my sister indecent? I raised her very well and she comes from a good family, said the brother. No, said his wife. At night, your sister has company in her room. She sits and chats with him. If you want to hear for yourself, I'll show you tonight. 
The moon appeared that night and the sister came in and sat with her brother and his wife. They dined, chatted, and had a good time. Then, which, then she withdrew to her room and took and to talk to the moon as usual. Greetings, father of happiness, O oh, one who gives good company to, to virtuous girls in their mother's house. The wife called to her husband saying, did you hear? Did you hear how your sister is not a decent girl, but me? Me, I would never do anything wrong. But the brother didn't listen because he believed his sister was a very good girl. One day, a man came around selling eggs. He advertised them, Bed El Hamara, Bed El Hamara, Bed El Hamara. The brother's wife went and bought all the eggs the man had, took them home, cooked them, and gave them to the girl, saying, Eat, eat all of the eggs. The poor girl ate all the eggs, and then her stomach began to bloat, getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Then the wife said to the brother, see, look at your sister, she's pregnant. Go now, take her away from here and kill her, that's it. The brother had no choice. He went to his sister and said to her, come, let's go to the bar, an, o an oasis in the open desert and a favorite spot for picnics. So they went to the desert and sat under a tree. The sister put her head down on her brother's lap and said to him, don't leave me. No, no, don't worry, he answered. We will sit here and have a lovely time and drink some coffee. Then we will be head back to the town. So the sister fell asleep. As she continued to sleep, her brother slowly slipped his legs out from under her. He left her there alone and went back home. His wife asked him, so what did you do with her? It's over. I killed her, he replied. The wife was happy with her victory. Now there was no one to compete with her for the brother. By Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's will, the wife stayed with her husband. Far away in the desert, the sister woke up and called out, Brother, oh brother, brother, but she didn't find him anywhere. The poor girl gathered herself and sat under the tree. Day after day, her stomach grew bigger and bigger until, by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's will, she gave birth to birds, 12 baby birds from the eggs she had eaten. The birds grew up and learned their mother's story. So they flew to the house where their uncle lived with his wife and sat on the windowsill and pecked at the window. The brother's wife heard them and chased them away. Shoo, shoo, shoo. They replied, shoo yourself. Oh, uncle, you confused uncle. You hear the voice of the woman. The poor girl was only pregnant from the bird eggs she swallowed. Again, the wife said, shoo, shoo. They replied, shoo yourself. Oh, uncle, you confused uncle. You hear the voice of the woman. The poor girl was only pregnant from the bird eggs she swallowed. The brother heard the birds and said, let's hear what they have to say. No, no, they have no story to tell, said the wife. Those birds just come from the desert. Let them leave. But the brother heard what they said. Shoo yourself. Oh, uncle, you confused uncle. You hear the voice of the woman. The poor girl was only pregnant from the bird eggs she swallowed. He decided to follow them. In the meantime, while the birds were with their uncle, the poor girl remained all alone in the desert. While she was there, Sheikh came along with his Rabia, a group of followers. He saw the young girl and he liked her. She was pretty and good. The Sheikh sat with his Rabia, had a nice time, and then they decided to leave. No, I'm not going anywhere. You go ahead, said the Sheikh to his companions. How will you spend the night here in the bar with no one in your company, they asked. The Sheikh said, I'm staying here. You ride off ahead of me. They listened, of course, because he was, after all, the Sheikh. So they left and he stayed behind. The Sheikh went to the girl and asked her, tell me, are you human or jinn? 
I am human, she said. Human? Then what are you doing out here in the bar? What brought you to the desert all alone, wondered the sheikh. The girl told him the whole story of her brother's wife, the story of her brother, how he had brought her there, and about the birds and the eggs. She told him everything. The sheikh said, I will marry you and make you mine. So he put her on his horse, headed home, and married the girl. She lived the rest of her life in joy. The brother, led by the birds, returned to where he had left his sister, but he could not find her. The birds flew away, and the brother returned home alone. Rona anahum ojina oma atuna she. We came and we left, and we took nothing from them. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and now finally, we have Matthew Spector. Hi. Um, who's the author of three books, uh, most recently American Dream Machine from Tin House. Um, his writing has appeared in the New York Times, GQ, the Paris Review, and numerous other periodicals and anthologies. He's a founding editor of the Los Angeles Review of Books. Um. I um I've been reading uh, Granica for a long time, but uh, but I I only just got this annual quite late yesterday, um, and so chose very rapidly what I was going to read, and it's a really good sign that even while I was standing over there, I think I almost changed my mind about you know six times. Um, there's so much wonderful stuff in here, um, and this is um, a nice thing to read after Kima's because it's because it's it's not a um, not a fairy tale. <laughs> it's called Ventana. <clears throat> In the second week of August 2010, I saw my first dead body in the desert. For nearly two years, I'd carried a small tin of Vicks VapoRub with me everywhere I went. I'd always heard the other agents talk about the smell. That's the worst part, they'd say, and it would stay in your nose for days. That's what the Vicks was for, for rubbing under your nostrils if you, came up, if you had to come up on a dead body. But this body was fresh, only about two hours old, and it hadn't started to smell yet. When I arrived at the body, it was evening, around 18.30 hours, and BPA Daniel Vince had already been on the scene for 30 minutes. The body was located about 100 yards south of Federal Route 23, a few miles west of the small village of Ventana, approximately 50 miles north of the international boundary on the Tohono O'odham Indian Nation of southwestern North Arizona. Vince told me he had been flagged down by the dead man's 16-year-old nephew and the boy's 19-year-old friend as he drove down the road. The dead man and the two boys all hailed from the same village in Veracruz, Mexico, and had set out together on the journey north. The dead man's nephew sat quietly on a rock, looking disoriented. His friend, the 19-year-old, did most of the talking. He told me that a few hours before the man died, he had taken two Settlemark pills, caffeine uppers that border crossers often take for energy, and had washed them down with homemade caña liquor that they bought from Veracruz. A few hours later, he said the man was staggering around like a drunk, and then he collapsed. <clears throat> Vince had placed a shirt over the dead man's face. I lifted it up and looked at him. His eyes were closed. He had long dark hair that already looked like a dead man's hair and dried foam had collected at the corners of his mouth. His face was covered with small red ants that traveled in neat lines towards the foam. His shirt was pulled up at the sides of his abdomen and I could see where his skin was turning blotchy and purple with dependent lividity as the blood settled to the ground. With the toe of my boot, I gently moved his arm, already stiff with rigor mortis. The 19-year-old told me that the three of them had become separated from their group. 
Their guide had told them to spread out and hide in the bushes by the road to wait for the load vehicle. He said that the three of them must have gone too far because sometime later they heard a car stop and then drive off and after that they couldn't find anyone. <clears throat> that was closer to the village, near the base of the big hill in Ventana. After finding themselves alone, they had walked west away from the village, skirting the road for several miles until the dead man lay down to die. The boys then had then gone to the road to flag down one of the infrequently passing cars, but no one stopped for them. Then the boys placed rocks in the road to make the cars stop. That was when Vince showed up. The boys asked me what would happen to the dead man if they could come with the body to the hospital, and I told them that they couldn't, that they had to stay with us, that they would be processed for deportation and the body would be turned over to the tribal police, and the police, not us, would arrange things. They asked if the body would come back to Mexico with them, if they could take the body back to their village. I told them no, that the body would be taken by the Pima County Medical Examiner, where they would try to determine the cause of death. I told them that in Tucson, the two of them would likely meet with the Mexican consulate, that it was they who would make arrangements for the, rip, for the repatriation of the body to Mexico, and that maybe the consulate could provide them with some sort of documentation of the man's death. The boys didn't want to leave the body, and even as I explained to them the procedures, I began quietly doubting, given what I knew from my few short years at work on the border, whether they would actually see the consulate, whether the consulate would actually arrange for the body to go back to Mexico, whether the boys would even receive a piece of paper to help explain to the dead man's family what had befallen him on the journey north. As I spoke to the boys, Vince came over and instructed them to take off their belts and shoelaces and any necklaces, watches, or jewelry they might have, and to take from their pockets any lighters, pens, knives, or other such objects. I looked at Vince. Transport's coming, he said. I wondered at how trivial the boys might find all this, to be digging in their pockets and fumbling at their shoes, if it even seemed like anything to them at all. The agent who arrived to transport the boys back to the station brought a camera to photograph the body. As the agent took his pictures, I noticed the dead man's nephew watching in a sort of trance. I explained to the boy that the pictures were required by the police, that they were needed for the reports we had to file at the station, and he nodded his head as if he had heard and understood nothing, as if he was just nodding because he knew that's what he was supposed to do. Before the boys were loaded into the transport unit, I went to them and told them I was sorry for their loss. It's a hard thing, I said. I told them that if they ever decided to cross again, they must not cross in the summer. It's too hot, I said, and to cross in this heat is to greatly risk one's life. They nodded. I told them never to take the pills that the coyotes give them. The pills will suck the moisture from your body. I told them that many people die here, that in the summer people die every day, year after year, and that many more are found just at the point of death. The boys thanked me, I think, and then they were put into the transport unit and driven away. The sun had already begun to set as I left Ventana, and it cast a warm light on the storm clouds that were gathering to the south. As I drove toward the storm, the desert and the sky above it grew dark with the setting of the sun and with the grayness of the coming rain. When the raindrops finally began to spatter on my windshield, I could hear the dispatch operator radioed events who had stayed behind with the body, that the tribal police didn't have any officers available to take care of it, and that he'd have to stay there and wait with the dead man a little longer. Later that night, at the end of our shift, I saw Vince back at the station and I asked what had happened with the body. He told me a few hours after I left, the storm had come and dispatch had told him to just leave the body there, that the Tohono O'odham police would have an officer available to take care of charge of it until tomorrow. That's all right, he told me. They've got the coordinates. I asked him if it had been strange, waiting there in the dark, watching over the body of a dead man. Not really, he said. At least he didn't smell yet. Vince and I stood for a few more minutes talking about the storm and about the human body that lay out there in the desert in the dark and in the rain, and we talked of animals that might come in the night and of the humidity and the deadly heat that would come with the morning. We talked, and then we, and then we went home. Thanks.
you. Thanks to all of our readers. Um, I have one other thing that I'd like to do, just because I promised our poetry editor that we would always have a poem. Um, and it's weird, because we are a general interest magazine, and we sort of have all these different sections. And so I'm going to read a really short poem, which is my favorite from the annual, which is really quick, and I am not a poet or a writer or a reader. <clears throat> But I just feel bad because I was like, we will always have a poet at each of these readings. Um, so it's called This Is How You Beg by Anna Rose Welch. Um, with a trowel chipping bit by bit at the garden, you find a pair of canaries, your mother's, long buried, fallen wild, gone, every muscle, wing, and feather tying the body together in your hands, their skeletons like light, slumped over a windowsill, brokenhearted. According to scripture, all you need is faith the size of a claw to command whatever has left you to return. Be uprooted and planted here again in this cage I've built for you, you should say. Open your arms wide as if the hull of a long lost ark was coming to shore itself against you. So often your mouth feels like the sky in a dark buttoned up gown. Remember that female bird wasn't built to sing either in accordance with science. Take her fibula and tibia, made perfect from perching. Take the radius and ulna from her clipped wings and replace his with hers. It should feel like you've rebuilt man from woman's most essential parts. This must be how God felt when he wrapped the rest of you around something as small as a man's rib and expected it to give you life. So. Thank you all for coming so much. Um, me and Michael are here. We can answer questions, or you guys can eat the rest of this meat and drink the rest of this wine, and then we're going to be going to Ye Old, what is it called again? Ye Old Rustic Inn down the street um, to have a drink. Um, so hopefully you guys will pick up a copy of the book. There are copies of American Dream Machine. I'm not sure if there are copies of Catherine's book around. If they're not, any, well, everybody's around. Um, so pick up something, buy something, because it's such a wonderful bookstore. Um, and thank you guys all so much for coming. And if you do have questions and you feel like really offended, just like corner us. How about that? <laughs> thank you guys for coming. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.